with you guys. If you brought your Bible, go ahead and turn over to Mark chapter 11. Uh, that's where we're going to be today in Mark chapter 11. If you didn't bring your Bible, you can, we have some place down at the ends of the rows. Grab that one and turn over to Mark chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home with you. That's our gift to you today. Everybody needs a Bible. Um, so yeah, we're going to be in the book of Mark. Uh, Mark is in the, in the New Testament. It's one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those start about two-thirds of the way through the Bible, if you're looking for it, and there's always no shame in using the table of contents to find the book of Mark. So, Mark chapter 11, 11, that's where we're going to be. Um, If you're newer with us uh, here at Sedaris, I want to clue you into what we've been doing here as a church. Um, This is actually, I counted it out, this is the 26th installment of a sermon series that we're in right now, where we're walking through the book of Mark. 26 installments. You guys have made it. Give yourself a round of applause. Way to go. And we're coming to the end uh, of, the, of the book of Mark. Um, and, and the way the book of Mark works is it's really interesting. The gospel according to Mark, there's no slow intro. You don't have a genealogy of Jesus there. Um, you don't have the birth story of Jesus, you know, baby in a manger, star in the sky, wise men. You have none of this. Um, because Mark is actually, he's writing down the stories that Peter told him. Because Mark wasn't one of the 12 disciples, disciples, Peter was. And so Mark is writing down Peter's stories, and Peter's stories start when Peter got introduced to Jesus, and that's right away in his ministry. And so uh, you go into um, the book of Mark, and it's all of a sudden things are happening, and they're happening at a busy, busy pace. Um, it's kind of like my first job. I worked at Boston Market, uh, my first job when I was 16 years old, um, a lot of blank stares. I don't know if anybody here knows what Boston Market is, but it's not out here. Um, imagine a Thanksgiving meal, and then imagine McDonald's, and Boston Market is where those two things overlap in the Venn diagram, okay? Just fast food Thanksgiving meal. Apparently, they love it in Boston, I guess, I don't know. Um, but actually, they're doing pretty poorly. They're going out of business now, because it doesn't sound, I mean, does that sound good to you guys? No, it's, it's not good. Um, anyways. Um, but my first day on the job, my manager, what he did was he threw me onto the drive-thru, and all of a sudden there were cars coming, and I'm taking these Thanksgiving meals that were heated up very quickly, fast food style, putting them on plates, putting the tops on, getting them in bags, getting them out the window, and then there's another car, and another car, and another car. And I did this for four hours, and I was exhausted. It's what you call like a trial by fire. And um, that's exactly what happens in the book of Mark. All of a sudden, you have Jesus, he's 30 years old, and you see Jesus healing people, casting out demons, feeding 5,000, calming storms. It's just happening at a really, really quick pace. Until the end, and it gets even more and more intense. At the end of Mark, we're in the last week of Jesus' life, and this intensity starts to go higher and higher. Jesus is making his authority more and more evident to everybody around him because he is ready to die. And he realizes that if he puts his authority out there, people are going to respond to that. And so if you've been tra- over the course of the last month, if you've been tracking with us, um, the sermons have been getting a little bit more intense because Jesus is being a lot more intense here. He talked about hell a month ago. We talked about hell. He talked about divorce then. Last week, um, Ben showed us how Jesus uh, makes official claims to kingship in Jerusalem. It's the first time ever in the book of Mark, and he accepts worship as a king from the people. That happens like a handful of other times in Mark, and Jesus is like, hey, don't do that. Don't worship me like that yet. But at the, here we're in Jerusalem. He's letting people worship him as the king. 
Jesus' authority is in full display. So Jesus is getting more intense. And in his last week of his life, he's also, and just um, geographically, the most intense place in Israel. He's in the capital city of Jerusalem. He's in the most intense part of their calendar, the Passover celebration and festival. And then he is going to, every day, he's going to the most intense location within the city, the highest point of the city, the center of all Israelite worship for a thousand years, the temple. And he's doing some crazy, crazy things. He's really being very, very authoritative. And today what we're going to see is the religious leaders are going to call Jesus on it. They're going to confront him on the authority that he's displaying and they're going to, because they've taken issue with it. And this nature of Jesus' authority is, it actually spans time and it spans cultures. Because this, this aspect of Jesus' authority is something that even we tend to resist to. Our culture and we even tend to resist as well. Jesus desires to put his authority over all of creation eventually is what the Gospel of Mark ends up showing us. And that spans to us today. And just like the religious leaders that we're going to see today, just like they resist, sometimes we can bristle, often we resist as well. And and so um, today, uh, what we're going to see is is this happen, and and I I really want to set you up for success if you are here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Um, It's actually really cool because um, what we're going to see is that um, coming under Jesus's authority is actually very similar to having faith in Jesus. Actually, these things tend to work hand in hand, um, submitting to Jesus's authority and having faith in Jesus. So it's a great opportunity for you today to get really clear on like this ambiguous term of having faith in Jesus or believing in Jesus what does that really mean? Um, today, you're going to have a, a little bit of an opportunity to see what that actually means in our passage today. Um, but if you're, you've been a Christian for a long time, this is a really great passage for you too, because um, over the course of our lives, Jesus will put his, fingers on, his finger on things in our life, and he'll say, what about this? Do I have authority over this in your life? What about this? What about this? And if you're honest, if you're anything like me, um, Sorry, I just called myself a really honest person. Sorry. <laughs> if you're anything like me, um, you kind of bristle much in the same way. You resist Jesus maybe a little bit at first. You say, whoa, that doesn't feel safe to me. Um, and so this is uh, going to be a great passage where we're going to see the authority of Jesus displayed and how we respond. Uh, by, we can come under it and participate with Jesus in growing our faith. So this is a passage about Jesus' authority, but what we find is it's really synonymous with faith in general, all right? And and what I want to suggest is that if we push through this, we're going to find life on the other side, and we're going to see it in our passage today. If we push through this, if we can get over our resistance and come to Jesus as he really is and let him say what he really wants to say to all aspects of our life, we're going to find life there. It seems scary, but we're going to find life, all right? All right, so we're just going to ask questions today of why do we resist this authority? How do we resist this authority? What happens when we resist this authority? And how can we tell if we are resisting 
his authority. Okay, so we're just talking about the authority of Jesus all day. Um, if this is your first week, uh, this might be a little bit of an intense talk, but that's okay. It's just Jesus being intense because he's about to die. And that's just what people who are about to die do. They just get really intense, right? <laughs> like, I'm going to tell you what's on my mind because uh, I have nothing to lose here at this point. And so that's what Jesus is doing here with us today, okay? So pick it up. Mark chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 27. We're going to see this showdown start to take place, okay? And they came again to Jerusalem. The they there is Jesus and his disciples. They're actually staying his final week. They're staying in a city just outside of Jerusalem, and they traveled to Jerusalem every day. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Who gave you the authority to do them? So the, here we have a, a showdown. So Jesus is coming into the temple, and there are people there waiting for him to show up, the religious leaders of the city. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And these things that they're referring to, the, these things, is what happened the day before that Ben talked a little bit about last week. You see, the day before, Jesus went to the temple, and he observed something happening. Um, and it's very similar to what you and I observe when we go to Safeco Field, okay? Um, all of Israel was coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They were in the temple courts. And um, attached to the, the festival of Passover were animal sacrifices that the religious leaders said the people had to make in order to be in right standing with God. And so the people, when they got to Jerusalem, they would buy these animals in order to sacrifice them at the temple. And so there's people selling um, uh, animals in the temple courts. But they do the same thing that the, the, the vendors at Safeco Field do, they charge $8.50 for a beer, okay? It's so obnoxious. Like, I love the ballpark. I hate that about the ballpark. Burning passion. Okay, no, but they're, they're upcharging these animals, and they're making so much money off of people who need to sacrifice at the temple. Jesus sees this happening, and he's outraged. He calls them robbers. He says, you've made my temple a den of robbers when in reality it's supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations, he says. And the gospel account of John, he records that in this instance, Jesus actually fashioned a whip uh, out of just whatever he found handy and was going around and whipping these sellers to get them out, to get them to stop doing this. He was going up to their tables and flipping over their tables. He was finding their chairs and he was kicking it out from under them. This is not the Jesus we typically think of when we think of Jesus, right? This is an angry, angry Jesus. Earlier in, in chapter 11, Mark says that he didn't let anybody carry anything in the temple courts. Like you couldn't carry anything. Jesus did that. So Jesus like straight up occupied the temple the previous day. Whether it be for the morning or the afternoon, the whole day, we're, we're not sure. But Jesus has come to the pinnacle of religious Jewish expression and he just occupies it. And so naturally these religious leaders, they're upset. This is a place where they had staked their authority. And their question is, who do you think you are, Jesus? It doesn't come through quite here in, in the, the English translation, but they're angry. They're really, really angry. And this is sometimes how we can respond too when Jesus comes into our life and starts to posit that he should have authority in different parts of it, in different aspects of our life. We can resist 
just like they resisted. We can be frustrated just like they're frustrated. We can bristle at that too. And, and, and we do this because um, it's really part of who we are as, as people, of who we are as humans, of who the religious leaders were as humans. Um, Paul in Romans chapter 8 says that, that the mind that is, is left to, to, or to operate by the flesh, the mind that's operating by the flesh, and the flesh is just another fancy word for saying that the mind that's uh, set alone to operate naturally, the, the mind that's left to, to operate naturally is that hostility with God. That there's a problem with, between humans and God. When he exerts his authority, we naturally resist it. Um, I have two daughters. Uh, Lucy's four, almost five. Uh, Penny's two and a half. And uh, this is what's true about every single child ever, about you and me as children too, I guess, um, is that they resist and are threatened by anybody who uh, would try to get and impinge on their self-sovereignty. They are naturally threatened by that. One of the first 10 words every kid learns is what? No, no. And, and before they, they even learn that word, they have a, an action for it. It's kind of really pathetic like this. They just get angry at you. No, every kid learns that before yes. Interesting, right? Um, my daughter Lucy, she learned to talk in full sentences right away, it seemed, and I'm pretty sure she learned to do that um, in order to just start debating us. Because um, I've been debating that child for almost four years now, and it's exhausting. If you would have come on our walk last night, you would have been exhausted just watching. I, I have 20 debates a day with that child because I'm always trying, threatening her self-sovereignty, trying to do other things than what she wants to do. Um, Penny, my other daughter, took a different route. She just decided to get really, really angry, and um, she'd turn pink, she'd turn red, red would turn to blue, blue went to purple, and she'd just pass out. Eyes would roll to the back of her head, she'd pass out. We were a little scared, so we brought her to the doctor, and we're like, hey, is this, what's going on here? And he, Dr. Bograd, he just kind of shrugged at me, and he said, yeah, they do that sometimes. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> That's nuts. So apparently it's normal if your children ever do that as at, at a young age. They just do that sometimes. No, but these kids are naturally resistant uh, and threatened by, by my sovereignty over their lives in very real ways. And um, they resist it no matter what. I don't know, understand why the first thing a kid doesn't say is, hey, thanks, mom. Thanks for renting me your womb for nine months. It was great in there. You know, thanks for risking your life to bring me into this world. That must have been really scary for you. Thanks for keeping me alive and feeding me each and every night. And I can see that you're pretty grumpy right now. And that's, I'm just going to forget about that because you've been through a lot right now. No. They say, no. Because we threaten their self-sovereignty. Um, and as we grow older, we actually don't grow out of this. This is something we... We don't grow out of, we just get more sophisticated at, at saying no to people who threaten our self-sovereignty. Um, things that are forbidden, we end up wanting more. Things we're told not to do, we'll just do it. Not necessarily because we enjoy it, but we just want to illustrate that we're in control of our own lives. Um, me and my dad, when we were in high school, when I was in high school, we were not in high school at the same time. <laughs> when I was in high school, um, my father, uh, he, we were talking about the Autobahn, and he just made an off comment like, yeah, no one should ever have to drive a car 100 miles an hour. 
And you know what I did that weekend? <laughs> Got that puppy up to the triple digits. It was great. Uh, I didn't really enjoy it. It was really horrifying and scary, actually. You know? But I wanted to illustrate that I had control over my life, and no one was going to say what I could or couldn't do. And wouldn't it make sense if we would naturally do this with God, too, then? If we're threatened by people who seek to exert their authority in our lives, wouldn't we naturally do this with a God who claims to be creator over everything? Who would say that each and every human is accountable to him with their actions? Wouldn't we be very threatened by that? And wouldn't we work against it? I, I think we do, and often we don't even know it. Often we don't even know that deep down in our core motivations, we're threatened by the sovereignty of God in our lives and are actively working against it. In, in fact, uh, modern psychology tells us that our deep core motivations that drive us are often undetected under the surface in our lives. And the process of self-awareness is trying to figure out what those are, trying to get down into what those things actually are so that you can grow and and, and shape them and mold them. Um, It doesn't happen through online tests because that's just you self-disclosing. That's what those tests are called, those self-disclosing tests. That actually happens through being in community with other people and giving other people um, a transparent seat to your life and maybe even the power to ask questions about, hey, why did you do this? And then offering up their own thoughts on why we behave the way that we do. That's where self-awareness really comes from. And and I want to take an attempt at self-awareness today with all of us, because I think there's three main methods that we uh, try to get around the authority of God because deep down in our core motivations is we're threatened by it. We are. Um, I I know I am at several points in my life. I can point out like, wow, I was very, very threatened by um, God wanting to do something with this part of my life, or I was even just threatened at, at entertaining the idea that this part of my life, I could ask God what he wanted me to do with it. That was a very scary question. I think all of us can really come to the, like honestly say, giving things over to God is a little bit scary. Um, but there, there's three methods that we can employ that, that we do to try to get around that, okay? Um, the first one is what I call um, avoiding God. It's not what I call, it's just, it's called avoiding God, sorry. Um, avoiding God, avoiding God. Um, you see, when we uh, avoid God, um, Often it's not driven by an intellectual statement. Often we avoid God because uh, we actually want to do something or, uh, yeah, we want to do something that we don't think he would approve of. Um, and at one point, um, there's, a, there's a guy right now, um, his name's Thomas Nagel. Thomas Nagel is a popular philosopher, popular atheist. And at one point he took a step back and he said, hey, hey, let me just tell you what's driving a lot of my atheism here. Let me just tell you why I am an atheist. And I actually have this short quote for you. We'll put it on the screens. He says, I want atheism to be true and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are, are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. 
You see, often there's a deep congruence between what we desire in life and what we intellectually think about life. Oftentimes, our desires are actually what drives our intellectual uh, decisions and what uh, drives us to, to make ultimate statements about how reality is in life. Um, and so this first, this first method of uh, avoiding God, it, 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 we dismiss God, we ignore him, we explain him away altogether, not necessarily because it's an intellectually intelligent thing to do, or we're convinced by some argument that it's a good idea, but because we actually want to go do something that we know that his authority would impinge on. This is avoiding God. Okay, the, the second thing we do is we can caricature God. Caricature God. You, you, you guys know what caricatures are, right? Caricatures are, uh, you know, they're, they're, you see them in those political cartoons where certain aspects of people are blown up or reduced. Um, you know, big head, big eyes, big ears, tiny nose, tiny mouth, tiny body, uh, these kind of things. And they're actually very, very powerful rhetoric. Caricatures are very powerful rhetoric because you can recognize the figure that's being presented, right? When you see a caricature, you say like, oh, that's Donald Trump. Oh, that's Hillary Clinton. Oh, that's Mayor Durkin. You know, like you can recognize the figure. But what's mo most powerful about him is, is that by... Um, exaggerating or reducing one or two things about that person, it lets you either uh, dismiss that person, you know, you can see their unflattering features and so you can write them off, or they can inflate the more, the more attractive parts of a person and you're more likely to accept them and deal with their other idiosyncrasies that they may have, right? And this is something that we can do with God as well. We can use, we can caricature God in such a way that he even props up our faith to a certain extent. We can um, exaggerate the parts about God that we like. We can exaggerate the things that make us feel good. Um, and, we, and usually we know we're doing this if, if we, can, we say things along the lines of like, I'll, I'll believe God if he's like this. I'll believe uh, God if he's like this. We exaggerate his more attractive features. Or a caricature can be a powerful tool to help you in your avoidance of God. You can exaggerate uh, his more difficult features to accept and disconnect them uh, from other features that he may have or reduce those altogether. And you can say, well, I can't believe in a God who's like this. I can't believe in a God who's like that. Um, either way, either way, what you've done is you've created a God that you can deal with on your own terms not one that can speak on his own terms. You've caricatured God. This is something that we're, we're very good at doing, um, and it's everywhere. The third, uh, the third method that we, that, we, um, that we employ to resist God is we control him. We control him. Um, this method is really represented best by um, the... Sorry, I hear myself smacking on the speakers. All right. This, uh, this, uh, this method is represented best by the older brother in the, um, the prodigal son parable that Jesus tells. Uh, the prodigal son story is uh, Jesus tells of a father who had two sons. One uh, asks for his half of the inheritance and runs away and spends it all on reckless living. The subtext there is on parties and prostitutes. He's hungry and can't support himself, so he comes back, and his father welcomes him back in and, and even celebrates him. And at the end of the story, what you're left with is the older son being like, hey, I've never been celebrated, and I obeyed you this whole time. And then it becomes very clear that the older son's obedience 
is really motivated by the same thing that the younger son wanted. He just wants the inheritance at the end of his father's life too. That's what it becomes clear. And what he's done is he said, like, you can be my father, and, and Jesus is trying to blow this up. You can be God out there, but in here, you really can't be God. I'm not going to have a relationship with you. And so we can control God. And, and an easy tip off for this is uh, if you make a lot of rules uh, to operate on in your life, um, that's probably indicative that you're compensating for a zero relationship with God in your life. And, and you may be saying, you can be God out there in the world, but not in my life. And there's often, and, and the person who's trying to control God has a deep and vibrant sin life that God can't say anything to. So th- these are the, the, the three methods. But I want to ask uh, one more question at this point, too. Yeah, the three methods are avoiding God, caricaturing God, controlling God. But I want to ask one more question here. And that is, what happens when we resist the authority of God? Like, like, what actually happens when we do this? What's the byproduct of that? And we see this in this confrontation with the leaders today, all right? Pick it up with me in verse 28 again. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. All right, so the religious leaders have confronted him in the temple. They were waiting for him. Jesus enters. They confront him, and, and they ask, who do you think you are? They want to have a discussion regarding credentials. They want, to be, they want to point at their credentials, saying, hey, these are the people that authorize us to have power here in the temple grounds, and you're just some traveling preacher from northern Israel. Who do you think you are to be here? They're being very selfish about what's going on there, and, and they want their self-authority to be exhibited there. And Jesus sidesteps the garbage, and gets to the heart of the issue. Uh, Jesus does this all the time with me. Um, this is all the time with me. The most recent example I can think of is um, I had had a hard, a hard week, and I was praying to God. I was saying, God, this week was really difficult. This didn't go how I thought it was going to go. This didn't go how I thought it was going to go. I'm really tired. Lucy keeps debating me. Um, I don't know what to do there, you know. And, and Jesus, uh, through the Holy Spirit, just interrupted me and said, are you going to lead your family or not? I was like, Poof. All of a sudden, he, he called out just my self-loathing and my self-pity with a very pointed question. I had to get back in the game, you know? This is what Jesus does. This is part of who Jesus is. And Jesus' counter-question, um, it, it just addresses what's really going on here. He's like, you guys didn't accept John the Baptist. You're definitely not going to accept me because I'm the continuation and fulfillment of John the Baptist's ministry. And so you're not going to accept me. So in that way, he answers their question for themselves. But I want to focus on what their response is, because it's really indicative of what happens when we seek our own authority, and we try to grasp our own authority in life. The Greek becomes really, like, funny in verse 32. It says, but if we say from man, and then it starts to make no sense, because it's clear that the sentence has just dropped off. 
The sentence has just dropped off. And so the Pharisees and, and the scribes and the chief elders, they're, they're talking about what's going to go on here. Like, they're, they're evaluating their options that Jesus has given them. And they realize, shoot, if we answer this question honestly, the crowds are going to revolt against us. Because much of the crowds were likely baptized by John. This is what most commentators say at this point. Do you see the irony there? That they can't answer one question correctly or they're going to lose the authority that they've tried to build up over their entire lives. They could lose it all if they just answer one question honestly. That's incredible. That's incredible. Because this is what happens when we try to exert our authority in our lives. We have these areas which we think are ours and our authority to do with what we want, which means that everything that we can touch, we, we control and micromanage and we, and we just make sure it goes exactly how we want it to go. And then everything we can't touch, we spend worrying about it and having anxiety about it and not sleeping over it. Before long, if you let that, your self-authority go unchecked, that anxiety is going to grow. It'll be chronic. It's going to get to a critical point where you're eventually going to have to medicate for it. And this is the direction that our culture is actually going at large. Um, from 2000 to 2010, um, adults aged 20 to 44 years old, um, anti-anxiety drugs um, increased 26% in women and 31% in men, we're, we're becoming more and more anxious of a culture as we're a culture that moves further and further away from the authority of God and seeking our own authority in life. But when Jesus shows up on the scene, he says, come all you who are weary, and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. And when we let go of all of the areas that, that we're trying to exert our authority over in life, our relationships, our jobs, our money, our possessions, when we let go of that authority, all of a sudden, we start to find peace. All of a sudden, we start to find rest. Jesus breaks into that reality and he assumes the authority that we were never meant to shoulder on our own. As created dependent beings on God, we are always meant to give the authority over to him and just act um, underneath his will and asking him what to do with the things that he's given us. Um, illustration is uh, right now we're, uh, we're doing a financial peace class. Uh, where we have 20 people who are going through a, a class that is really all designed around the big idea of what if we gave God authority in our finances. 20 people are going through this. It's actually wrapping up soon. And they're not shy that one of the main ways that you do this is by tithing, giving a tithe that's giving 10% to God. And that sounds scary. That sounds intimidating. But that's one of the ways that they say you can really... Um, Give God authority in your finances. And now we're getting towards the end of it. All these stories are coming out where people coming out where people are having more peace with their finances than ever before. That's really counterintuitive, right? That's really counterintuitive. When we let go of our authority over things in life and give it to God, we find peace and we find rest. Now, this isn't just Jesus take the wheel either, okay? I love Carrie Underwood. Uh, Actually, I don't. I don't know why I said that. Uh, <laughs> um, this isn't just Jesus' take uh, the wheel, okay? Because we also find something else when we give uh, our authority over to God, and it's we find incredible boldness. There's actually an incredible boldness. 
It's not Jesus, take the wheel. It's like, Jesus, this is your wheel. How do you want me to turn it? And when it's on him and not on us, we're far more likely to engage difficult conversation. We're far more likely to engage difficult circumstances. We're way more likely to talk to our friends about big conversations. We're way more likely to engage the brokenness as we address it in the workplace. We're way more likely to confront people that may have wronged us and try to find reconciliation because it's not on us, it's on Jesus. And if it goes poorly, well, it's okay. Jesus has got us. So it's, it's not Jesus take the wheel. I wanted to make sure I said that. All right, so turning over authority to Jesus brings us peace, brings us rest, brings us boldness. Those are three big things, all right? Now, these, um, these Pharisees wanted to have a discussion on credentials, and Jesus is going to give them a discussion on credentials, and he does so in this parable of the tenants right afterwards, all right? Sorry, guys. And he does so in the parable of the tenants, all right? And it's a very fascinating parable, and, and we're, we're going to move through it, Okay. And he responds, he says, and he, Mark says, and he began to speak to them in parables. Now Jesus, up to this point in Mark, Jesus spoke in parables so that he wasn't understood. So that Jesus, so that people didn't perceive his full authority in life. Up to this point in Mark, that's what he's done. But he's actually trying to be understood in this parable. And what's interesting is he actually is. Because if you skip down to verse 12, it says, and they were seeking to arrest him after the parable, but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So Jesus is trying to be understood in this parable, all right? And this parable is, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And he's talking to the religious leaders. And this is a scenario that is represented almost one for one in the book of Isaiah chapter five. Let's look at it together. Um, it goes like this. This is Isaiah speaking, uh, I guess it's like a long time ago, Seven, like around 750. No, maybe 800. I should know that. Okay, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they, that they rain no rain upon it. They rain no rain upon it. And so what's happening here is that Israel is this vineyard that God has planted in, in the ancient Near East. And, and the vines are, are the people of Israel. And he looked to get, to get fruit from it, but he only found the fruit of injustice that his people brought forth. And so he stopped protecting them. He stopped protecting them. They were invaded by other countries. And Jesus adds something to this here. He puts in another party, and it's right here. He says, and leased it, the vineyard, to tenants and went into another country. He leased it to tenants and went to another country. So um, just as a heads up, now the vineyard's responsibility isn't necessarily the, the people who are the vines to bring forth good fruit, but the responsibility to bring forth good fruit are going to be these tenants, the religious leaders. Jesus adds something here. Alrighty. 
And this is something that actually was very common in northern Israel at the time because it was primarily owned, primarily owned by, by distant landlords. And the Jews would actually work the land in kind of a sharecropping uh, system where they would give back some of the crop for their, um, for their rent. Okay? And then they'd take the rest of the crop and sell it for themselves. So let's look at this parable now, okay. When the season came, he sent a servant to tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he still had one other, a beloved son. And the Greek directly translates actually this as an only son, which will be important here in a couple verses. He still had one other, his only son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They conclude that the distant landlord has died and that this heir has all the power. So they say, let's kill him so we can get this land for ourselves. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So what is Jesus doing here? He's actually being a history teacher. He's being a historian right here. He's saying, if you guys want to talk about credentials as the leader, leaders of the people of, of Jerusalem and of Israel, let's talk about those leaders of Jerusalem and of Israel, because they don't have a great record of dealing with the messengers of God. Just a couple examples, um, Habakkuk, who wrote the book of Habakkuk here in the Bible, he was stoned to death in Jerusalem. Um, Amos, the guy who wrote the, the book of Amos in the Old Testament, the chief priest took his staff and, and struck him in the head and killed him. Um, there's a guy named Zechariah, who's a different Zechariah than the guy that wrote that book in the Bible, but he was stabbed to death in the temple courts, likely not far from where this conversation's happening right now. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah, uh, the king ordered that he be killed and he was thrown into a cistern. A foreigner found him, got him out. The king found out, threw him in prison until the Egyptians took over. The Egyptians took him down to Egypt only to be stoned by the Jews there for speaking against their worship of the Egyptian gods. And Isaiah, who we just read up here, that's Isaiah, um, he was sawed in half at the order of the king. And Jesus says, hey, your credentials aren't that great with dealing with the messengers of God. And then he tilts his hand, you're going to do the same thing with me. In fact, you're going to make sure I die all the way. Now, the, the direct application of this passage isn't lost on me. This is a passage against religious leaders. This is a passage um, warning anybody who would lead the people of God in any significant way um, this is me, this is Dave, this is any other pastors that are out there. The fact that there is a deeper, this shows there's a deeper level of judgment for anybody who would lead the people of God, which terrifies me. I'm sure it terrifies Dave as well. Um, and, and so what we do here at Sedaris, that's why we preach through entire books of the Bible. That's why we've gone through the book of Mark and not skipped over anything that's why when we preach the book of Mark, we go back to these other messengers of God and we say, what do these messengers have to say as well? It's called presenting the, presenting the full counsel of God's messengers. All of this is from God's messengers. And we sit under this together. And so that's why we do what we do here um, at Sedaris, to submit to all the messengers of God. 
Uh, but the application for really the, the people of God is you need to be asking this of anybody who you give religious authority to in, in this life. Because at the same time, we're, we're not naive. We know that we all, we have a lot of different authorities that we look to to tell us about who God is and, and what it's like to follow him and how to follow him. We, we know that, that we can look to a lot of different places for that. And you need to be asking the question of each one of those people, what have they done with the messengers of God? And the easiest way to do that is to ask, well, what do they do with the Apostle Paul nowadays? Because there are so many people out there that, that have huge movements of huge followings of, of Christians that look at the Apostle Paul and they say things just like, yep, Paul was wrong. Yeah, when he said that, that was just incorrect. Paul was wrong. And in doing so, they beat him. They beat the messenger of God. They rip out pages from the New Testament. And, and if we actually get rid of Paul, then what actually ends up happening is we start discrediting other authors, other messengers as well, because Luke actually tells us in the book of Acts that Jesus appeared to Paul and, and made him his messenger, his apostle, to pass on what it looks like to have faith in Jesus to everybody. If we can't trust Luke's author of the book of Acts, and we can't, probably shouldn't trust his authorship of the gospel, and he was just working off of Mark and filling in some stories in and around Mark, and how he said, and Mark's kind of saying what Peter said, and all of a sudden, we're beating up messengers, we're shaming messengers, maybe we're killing some of them. And when this happens, these are the leaders that when Jesus eventually comes back, they're going to be resistant to his authority in their life, they're going to push back against it, and they're going to ask you to do the same. That's what's going to happen. It's a big deal, and it's really scary. And so we always need to be asking the people who we look to for religious authority, what have they done with the messengers of God? All right? Now here's, here's the reality of what's happening here, though. Jesus is prophesying his death because we've already killed Jesus. We've already killed him. Here we see three different parties addressing Jesus. Um, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And the elders was comprised of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Zealots. These are, these are all groups who didn't like each other at all. They like hated each other. They were always debating one another. But they recognized that Jesus is coming in and he's going to put authority over all of them. And so all of a sudden, they're best friends. Common enemy, right? Sometimes I give Lucy and Penny a common enemy and myself just because I want them to get along. You know, I'll do that. Guilty. Um, and, and soon uh, Herod and Pontius Pilate are going to get in on the act too. Um, Luke, uh, in, in his Gospel of Luke, he, he shows us and he makes sure to tell us that uh, Herod and Pontius Pilate were at enmity with one another. They were in fights with one another. And um, on the day that they decided to kill Jesus together, on that day, he says, they became friends. And on that day, all the crowds of the people who want their own authority as well start shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The same people who just got done shouting, we saw yes, or last week, Hosanna, the king is here. Jesus' authority becomes apparent in Jerusalem and the whole world pushes back against it, just like you've done in your life, just like I've done in my life. All of us have had a hand in killing God and killing Jesus. But Jesus doesn't end there. He actually includes something very interesting at the end of this parable. He 
He tries to, he, he applies it here in verse 10. He says, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. You see, Jesus is, is taking a metaphor out of Psalm 118. And he's doing it to show that, yeah, anybody who is seeking, uh, his, uh, who's seeking God's authority is going to stand rejected by builders who are trying to build their own blueprints here in this life. They're trying to construct their own buildings on their own authority and trying to create their own things. And so they're going to reject Jesus. Jesus stands rejected, but God picks up that stone as the one who actually has authority in creation, and he puts it in the most prominent, important place in the building. Rejected, yes. Glorified, absolutely. This is Jesus's path that we're going to see, and this is where Mark ends up at the end of his gospel. Spoiler alert, okay? But here's what's interesting. This is the same for you, and it's the same for me, too, actually. If, you, if you're united to Jesus by faith, this is the same for you. And, and this is what Peter says in his book, uh, in one of his letters. He says, as you come to him, this is, that means as you come to God or as you come to Jesus, as you start to submit to Jesus's authority, you're a living stone rejected by men. That is, that as you submit to the authority of Christ, yes, you're going to be rejected by the people in this world who are working for their own authority and trying to do their own things. You'll be a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so as we seek the authority of Jesus in our lives, we actually become rejected in much the same way that he was. That the people constructing the building pick up our stone and they see that we submit to the authority of Jesus and they, they drop it on the other side. What Jesus does, though, is he picks that stone up and he takes it to his building, and he puts it there. And then he finds another one, he picks that up, put, takes it to his building, puts it there, they're right next to each other. This is the picture of, of his church. Peter's giving a vibrant picture of his church. The fact that, that all of these stones that are rejected in the world now have community in one another. They're really close to each other. They can encourage one another to go out, to continue to put up with the rejection that they face and that they stand each and every day. That's what the church does. Because when we, when we submit to Jesus' authority, we find peace, we find rest, we find boldness, we find the church. And when all those things come together, what we actually find is the mission of God. The mission of God to find as many living stones as we can and put them into this spiritual building. That's why we're doing Alpha. Where are those living stones out there in Seattle? How can we invite them along to process what it means to have faith in Jesus, what it means to submit to the authority of Jesus so that they can find life in this community that, that rubs shoulders with one another, that encourages one another, that can point people to, to living life in a world where we stand rejected well and do that well. So that's the question that I want to leave you guys with. Where are you a living stone? people in your fellowship group, your friends. Press into those relationships and take steps towards the mission of Jesus together as he's united over us. Pray with me. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for my friends here who, um, who are 
still coming and putting themselves under, underneath your word along with me um, each and every week as, as we talk about what your son did um, in his life and particularly in the last week of his life, Lord. God, we, we come, on, come to you and I just ask that you would help my friends to, to process uh, your authority in their lives this week, the, the ways that, that you want um, to take authority in their lives so that they can have peace, so that they can find boldness in your mission, God. I pray that, that you would make that clear to them, Lord. I, I also just pray that you would let them know that, that you love them and, and that you, are, you, you seek to, to put your authority in all of our lives so that we can find life so that we can really figure out how this world was supposed to work and, and press into that together and imagine a society where all of us are submitting to you who loves all of creation, um, all, all men, women, children, uh, so, so beautifully and so much more than even we could in our own authority. So um, I thank you for my friends. I pray as, as we worship you now, we can just give our hearts to you. And I pray that you would just put people on our hearts now that we can invite uh, to process what it might mean to be a living stone put together in the community of God. So uh, we, we pray this all uh, in the name of Jesus, who said these, these very authoritative words, and, and by your spirit, who he sent um, after him to continue them on down each generation. Amen.